0: I love Psalm chapter 51 because David is writing from a place of intense vulnerability. He's writing from a place of brokenness. He's writing from a place of sincere shame. He's writing from a place of hurt. He's writing from a place of conviction And I feel like on the heels of an Easter Sunday where we had so many people visit our church and so many people uh, coming back to church and so many people who were talking about what God was starting to do in their lives, that the next place we needed to go is how to deal with now, we've made the decision, how do we deal with what I've been doing the past year? How do we deal with how I've been living the past 20 years? Because yes, God is great, and yes, God is good, and yes, God is faithful, and yes, God is gracious, but you don't know what I've been doing with my life the past several years. You don't know how I've been treating my wife. You don't know how I've been treating my husband. You don't know what I've been doing behind the scenes. You don't know the sin that I've been involved in for years. And so David in Psalm 51 Addresses with the deepest, sincerest, broken heart before the Lord how we approach God with these things. Let me give you the context. So, Psalm 51 was written in response to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. If you go there in your Bibles, you're gonna see, and I'm gonna paraphrase it for you. David is king at the time, and David goes to the top of his rooftop, and he peers off the top of his rooftop, and he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing and when he sees her bathing he says wow I like what I see bring her to the king's palace let her know how a king wines and dines somebody and so she's married to another man he brings her into his palace he wines her he dines her and he sleeps with her and then afterwards she leaves goes back to her home and then she sends word back to David and she says hey David by the way uh that little fun night that we had together I'm pregnant now in other words, David, David got himself a baby mama that he didn't need to have. And so David says, oh, shoot, I've got some problems. And so he decides, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to cover it up. So he reaches out to her husband, Uriah the Hittite, who is at war at the time, and he says, send Uriah back home. Uriah comes back home, he throws a big party for Uriah, he makes a beautiful meal, he gets Uriah drunk, and then he says, Uriah, go and sleep with your wife, enjoy the evening. And Uriah goes out, and Uriah sleeps on the doorsteps of the king's palace, wakes up in the morning, the king says, why didn't you go to your house? And he says, far be it from me to go home and to sleep with my wife when my brothers are at war sleeping in a tent in a battleground. So David says, okay, if I can't get him to cover it up, I might as well kill him. So David writes a letter to the head of his army, and he hands it to Uriah, and he tells Uriah to go, man, that'd be a great sermon, carrying your own death letter, right? So Uriah takes this letter, and he delivers it to the head of the army, and the army takes it, he opens it up, and it says, when the heat of the battle arises, and they begin fighting amongst each other, send Uriah to the front lines of battle, and make sure he doesn't survive. So the whole scene plays out just as David orchestrated it, Uriah is sent to the the front of the battle lines. Uriah is killed. Word gets back to the king that Uriah has been killed, and now David's trying to figure out what to do with his affair child and his family and everything else that he has going on. So Nathan comes to David, and Nathan confronts David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And he says, David, I want to tell you a story. And David says, okay. And he says, suppose there was a shepherd man. And suppose this shepherd man went to another man's flock and he started stealing from that other man's flock. And when he was taking from him, the other man found out. And when the other man found out, he had that other man killed and decided to keep his flock. David, what would you do? And David looks at Nathan and he says, I would would punish that man. I would take back what was stolen and I would put that man in prison. And Nathan looks at David and he says, David, you are that man. And David famously says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have realized what I've done. I've realized my sin and I've sinned against the Lord. And then he comes before the Lord in Psalm 51 and he pens this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb teaching me wisdom even there purify me from my sins and I will be clean wash me and I will be whiter than snow oh give me back my joy again there's no joy in sin there's no joy in harboring sin there's no joy in having rebellion and sin and shame buried deep within your soul. It will steal from you the very joy of your salvation. But David cries out, Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Beautiful worship song written after that. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you got to lay a foundation before we dive in, and, and we're going to dive into the last several verses, but before we do, uh, I think this is, and it's intentional, and it's there for us to take, David in Psalm 51, 1 lays the foundation for our relationship with God when we have been sinful, we've been rebellious, we have done shameful things, and we've done things that grieve the heart of God, David lays the foundation for how we approach God when that is the reality, in Psalm 51, verse 1, he says, have Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Listen, God's grace is according to who he is and not what you've done. God's grace for you, God's grace on you, God's grace with you is according to who he is and not what you have done. You cannot produce grace, you pursue grace. There is a huge difference. You will never be able to produce in your life what Christ can, can give you if you will pursue him. David says it, it is you, Lord, who does what needs to be done. It is you who blots out my stain of my sin. It is you who forgives me. You cannot produce grace in your life to receive the freedom that you need or the forgiveness that you long for, it is pursued. It is something you go after. It is something that you chase after. It's something that you run. We, we get in this light, we get in this mindset of I've got to, I've got to do this, and I gotta do this, and I gotta do this, and I gotta do this. You cannot produce what you need. You can only receive what you need, and you receive what you need by pursuing the one who has the abundance of grace that you long for and desire. That's where that's where it's at. That's where David starts. David is like, okay, let me count the ways. I had an affair, I have a love child, I killed the man who was the father, and now I'm trying to figure out what to do, and oh, by the way, you are the only one who can fix this. You are the only one with grace enough to cleanse me. You are the only one with compassion enough to renew me and to remove the stain. He is the only one and His grace and abundance is far greater than anything that you can do on your own. My son, uh, he's, he's five and he told me the other day that he needs his privacy. <laughs> right? Man, we, we live in a crazy day now. I, I, let me give you a little parenting tutorial here. There is no such thing as privacy when a kid is under my roof, in my house, under my leadership, my protection, and I'm raising them. <laughs> let me tell you, uh, you know, I can get a few golf claps, back nine, hole 13, putting for eagle. No, I'm, I'm serious. Like, you give your 16-year-old a cell phone with Internet access with texting to people, and you don't even know the password for it, and you're paying the bill? No. No. I'll have the, oh, you got a social media account? You're 15? Great. What's the password? It's going to be on my phone too. Oh, you got an Instagram, and you need your privacy? No such thing in my house. God has called me to steward you. God has called me to lead you. God has called me to protect you. God has called me to care for you. So my son, he's five, he tells me, I, I remember, man, things have changed. I remember when I was a kid, I walked into my buddy's house and his sister didn't have a door on her on her room. And I said to him, I was like, man, what happened there? And he said, oh, my sister had a boy over to study. And when that boy was over, they went into my sister's room and she closed the door. And my dad went and got a hammer and a screwdriver out of the garage. And he popped, pop, pop, popped the hinges off and pulled that door off and said, no girl of mine is going to be behind closed doors with a boy in my house. She didn't, have a, she didn't have a door in her bedroom. There's no such thing. So my son, he's, he's in the restroom. And now, listen, I'm, I'm not overboard on this. Yes, I'm going to let my son have privacy in the bathroom. But last time he was in there by himself for about 20 minutes, we had about 30 rolls of toilet paper undone and stuffed in the toilet and in the sink. And he TP'd the bathroom and he's just having a good time, right? He likes to go to the bathroom before bed and spend 45 minutes in there so he doesn't have to go to sleep. So I go up there and I open up the door to check on him. And he pushes the door shut in my face. And he says, Dad, I need my privacy. <laughs> no, sir, not happening. I open up the door, and I said, there's no such thing in my house. You, you're not getting to, come on, wrap it up. I, I don't know what you're doing, but it's time, to, it's time to go. Let's go. So he shuts the door. About five minutes later, I walk over there. Door's locked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I reach up on that jam. You know, there's that little pin up there, and it's got that little flat edge. And I got that pin, and I got inside it, and I went, Right when I popped it open, I shot open the door and he he freaked him out. He's messing around in the cabinets everything else. And I said, did you think that you could hide from me in my own house? Did you think there was a place that you could go that I couldn't get to, that I couldn't access, that I couldn't find you if I wanted to find you? Listen to me today. Do you think that there is a place in your life that grace can't go? Do you think that there is a place in your life grace can't go? Do you think there is a door in your life? Yeah, I love the Lord and everything else, but the Lord just can't fix what I've done here. There is no door. There is no sin. There is no shame. There is nothing that's happened to you that God's grace can't enter into and transform form in you. His grace is for you. And His grace knows no limits. It knows no boundaries. Take it from David, who's declaring, only your grace can remove the stain of my sin. Only God's grace can do for you what you long for, can do for you what you need, and there is no limit to it. There's no hurt in your past. There's no shame in your past. There's no sin in your past. There's no place that God's grace can't go. But we have to pursue that grace. What do we see David doing? I recognize I've sinned before the Lord. God, you're the only one. You are the only one who can fix this. You're the only one who can redeem this. And then we roll into, starting in Psalm 51, 9 through 12, don't do, don't do. There's two don'ts and two do's. I love how David approaches God at the end here. And he asks him, he begs him to do several things that I think are important for us. Where is my water before we really get going? Cheers. I'll drink to that. All right. First don't. Don't do. Don't do not do do not do. You have it in your sermon notes if you want to follow along, ourconcil.com or uh, through our app. You can go to the sermon notes and see what I'm going through here. First don't is this, Psalm fifty-one 9. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. This is a really cool passage because there's a recurring theme with the children of Israel that God is watching them. Actually starts in the garden, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God is watching over them and it moves to the children of Israel and God is watching them and it says God sees them in their slavery. Exodus 2 and 3 God sees the persecution of his children. He sees them in slavery and then he sets them free into the wilderness and it says he sees them complaining about not having food. He sees them complaining about not having water. He sees them rebelling at the base of Mount Sinai. He sees them over over and over and over. So if you're living in this time where David is, you have this overlooming set of eyes that you know God sees you. And this is when God would appear before them and he would send word to them that I have seen your sin. I have seen your rebellion. I have seen what you are doing. In fact, Jeremiah sixteen seventeen sums it up nicely. He says, I, wa- I am watching them closely And I see every sin. This is God's word to the people through Jeremiah. They cannot hope to hide from me. He says, I see them. I see what you're doing. I know what you're involved in. I know what you're looking at in the middle of the night on the computer. I know who you're talking to behind everybody else. I I see you, and I know exactly what you're doing. Yet, what does David cry out for? Please don't keep looking Don't keep seeing and looking at me through the lens of my past. The battle we all face is looking at ourselves now through the lens of our past sins. Yet, what does Exodus 12, 12 through 13 say? I love this. Last week, uh, the Jewish synagogue, the Jews, uh, Judaism celebrated the Passover. And we honor the Passover. We don't celebrate the Passover. You can. It's beautiful. It's nice. But Passover, here's what Passover means Exodus 12, 12 through 13. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt. Little context. So, children of Israel, they've gone through nine plagues. This is the last plague, and this last plague is setting them free into the wilderness so that they can go to the promised land that God has promised them. Remember out of Egypt, we did that season, the whole season on this, right? So, this is the last plague that's setting them free, and he said, here's how I'm going to know you're with me. You go, you slaughter a lamb, put the blood on your doorpost, and when I see it, I know who I'm passing over. So, it says, on that night... I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. Verse 13. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are saying, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood... I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's connect the dots here. What makes God look past sin? The blood. Whose blood was shed for us to cleanse us of sin. The final sacrifice was Jesus. The final shedding of blood was Jesus. So blood makes God look past Jesus' blood was shed for me to cleanse and cover me. So whose blood changes God's view of me? Jesus. Jesus' blood is the filter that changes God's view of me. That changes how he sees me. That changes what he sees from my past. I will tell you, uh, another public service announcement since I'm on a roll today. These Instagram filters are getting out of hand. It's, it's out of hand, people. I mean, the funny ones are funny, but I, there, there are some, I, had, I saw somebody post it. It's like, honey, listen, it's the middle of winter. We know you're not skinnier than last year with the dark tan, bright white teeth. Your eyes are sparkling. Your cheeks are thinned up. Your cheekbones are higher. We had, I saw someone post a picture the other day. It looked like an avatar. It didn't even look like them. I was like, who is this? Not a blemish in sight. Beautiful lighting, faces all cleaned up, everything's looking great. It's, it's crazy. It is crazy. But there's something about us that wants other people to see us different than what we really are. Yet the blood of Christ does exactly that for the Lord when he looks at us. The blood of Christ is a filter so that when God sees us and God looks at us, He is seeing us through a person who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So the person in your flesh that you look at in the mirror and you feel guilty about and you feel worried about and you feel ashamed about is not the same person that God is looking down and seeing through the blood of Christ. He sees you through the filter of the blood. He sees you as somebody, it's when David says, Please don't see me like that anymore. The only thing that can change the way God sees you is the blood of Christ that has cleansed you, that has changed you, that has transformed you, that has renewed you. And God still, to this day, passes over all of my past all of my sin, all of my shame, to see the person that he created with purpose to worship and glorify him with the ability to do so without stain, without blemish, without mark, without anything. That's what the blood of Christ does. So he says, please, don't. The first thing, don't. First thing, I'm you, I'm crying out to God is God, don't see me for my past anymore. In fact, thank you that you don't because the blood of Christ has changed your view of me. The blood of Christ has transformed how you see me. And then he goes into a do. He says, don't do this. Now God, do this. Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. I've always loved, and and one thing I love about Psalm 51, go back, I'll give you a homework assignment. Go back and read through Psalm 51 and, and, and read how many times David asked God to do something for him. David asked God, "Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me." I'll be honest with you, I think we get so wrapped up in needing to do something that we miss out on the power of asking God to do something. Oh, I need to clean my heart up, which means I gotta stop doing this, and I gotta start doing this, and I gotta quit doing this, and I gotta start listening to this, and I gotta start talking to these people, and I gotta quit talking to these people. And we instantly go into this list of things that we have to do when David is modeling for us. What can we ask God to do? Instead of trying to clean my own heart up, why don't I ask God to clean my heart up? Instead of trying to renew a passion or renew a loyal spirit with me, why don't I ask God to renew a loyal spirit in me? Instead of just trying to do a bunch of things to be a better husband, why don't I ask God to make me a better husband? Instead of being stressed out and worried and frustrated with myself for not being a good parent, maybe I need to stop trying to do all of these things to be a good parent and just ask God to make me a better parent. And then here's what God will do. God will begin to orchestrate things in your life to manifest the things you are asking Him to do. You don't need to do more, you need to ask more. You don't need a new list of 50 million things you have to do so that you can be the person God wants you to be. You need to ask God to do exactly what it is you long for Him to do and allow Him to work out the things in your life to produce the fruit that you're longing for. Matthew 7 7 through 8 He says, Keep on asking. And you will receive what you ask for. (laughs) Really quick, context for this is Matthew chapter 6, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is within the will of God. Don't don't get wacky on me now and think that that means ask God for whatever you want, you're going to get whatever you want. It's within the context of God's will. Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. What did David model and what did Jesus say? Ask me and I'll do it. Ask me and I'll do it. Ask me to give you greater passion and I'll do it. Ask me to help you see somebody in a different light, and I'll do it. Ask me to help you be a better parent, and I'll do it. Ask me to help you quit looking at things you shouldn't look at, and I'll do it. Just ask me, and keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking, and I will do it. I am a dangerous mechanic. I'm a YouTube mechanic. How many of y'all, YouTube mechanics, where are you at? Come on, don't be ashamed. I'm one of them. You, you, you'll YouTube something, and you'll watch a guy do it in seven minutes, and it takes you four and a half hours in your garage. Literally in a seven-minute video. this lifts up the truck. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom, boom. Fixes the part. Changes the sensor. Truck back down. Fire back up. And, hey, by the way, buy the parts from us at doubleaauto.com. blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, man, I got this. Three and a half hours later, I've been to AutoZone like four times, and I got all this stuff I don't need, and I'm watching other videos, and I can't figure out. So I did that one time. There was this, this, like, oil pressure sensor on the very back of an engine block, and I watched this video of this guy. He's like, man, now here's the trick. Here's how you do it, and you beat the system, and you don't need all the tools, and you don't need all. Great, got it, no problem. Open up my truck. Two hours later, it's undrivable. It's literally like I got stuff that I've taken apart that I don't even know how to put back together. I was like, I need to get this to the mechanic, but I don't want to pay a tow truck, and it's it, you can't even turn the thing on. So I called my friend, who's a mechanic. <laughs> Humbling moment. I said, Hey man, what you doing? <laughs> he's like, What'd you what'd you break? What'd you mess up? I'm like, Hey, you want pizza? I'll buy you some pizza. You gonna swing by the house? And he's like, Man, what's going on? And I said, Well. It started with an oil pressure sensor, and then I took this thing off that one video told me to take off, and then I removed this thing that I tried to remove here, and and he said to me on the phone, why didn't you ask me first? Why did you try and do all this on your own when you know you can't? What? Why are you trying to do everything on your own when you know you can't? It's why He came. It's why He died. It's why He rose so that we can live like Him and we can ask Him and He can empower us and the Holy Spirit can lead us and we can become who He's called us to become. Not by my might, not by my power, but by who He is and what He can do. Ask Him first. Ask him first. Go home and tear up the list of everything that you think you need to do and make a list of everything you need to ask. God, I need to ask you for this. God, I need to ask you for this. God, I need to ask you to do this, and I will keep asking, and I will keep asking, and I will keep seeking, and I will keep seeking, and I will keep knocking until I see you do it. Let me tell you something. God has the ability to fix whatever your flesh has messed up. God has the ability to fix it. He has the ability to restore it. He has the ability to repair it. But you have to ask. And then you pursue. And then we see another don't from David. He says, Psalm 51, 11, Don't banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It's powerful to think about. I've thought a lot about, we talk about, a lot about having the Holy Spirit and growing in the Holy Spirit. But did you know you can also grieve the Holy Spirit? But you can also grieve Him so much that He's not with you. One of the scariest passages in Scripture is Samson. When Samson goes and it says, Samson reared up and he did not know it, but the Lord's hand was no longer upon him. Imagine being the strongest man. One of the deepest convictions I have when I walk on this stage is, Lord, I need your hand. Lord, I need your hand. You want to see me fumble a sermon? You see me walk out here without the presence of God and this will be a mess. This will be a disaster. And then on Monday, Lord, help me to have your presence. Help me to have your Holy Spirit. When we talk about lead people into the presence of God, that's who we are. We want it not just on Sunday, but Sunday changes Monday. And then we want to walk into Monday and we want to be living in the presence of God. We want to wake up and the first thing we long for is what we have right now is his presence. And we want his presence and his spirit to transform the way we parent, to transform the way we live, to transform the way we love, to transform the way we interact and what does David say here just don't take it away don't make it go away what is James half-brother of Jesus in 4 7 through 8 he says humble yourselves before God resist the devil and he will flee from you come close to God and he will come close to you wash your hands you sinners purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world James says that which you draw near to will influence you it's the game of hot and cold. Let's play a game of hot and cold. Dylan, come up here. Come on, come on, quick, quick, quick. You can just jump the speakers, come on. I know you're an athlete. Look at him go. There you go. Here, let me, let me show you. Here, I want you to turn and face that way, okay? Yeah, yeah. No, yes, face that way. Yeah, please don't look. Don't cheat. This is church. All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to play a game of hot and cold. Okay, you ready? Ready? All right, we're going to play a game of hot and cold. So you're going to find my Bible. I want you to turn around, and I'm going to tell you hot or cold when you begin looking for the Bible, okay? Yeah. Got him already, right? Cold, cold, getting warmer, getting warmer, getting warmer, warm, hot, cold, 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 freezing, freezing, cold. Oh, warmer, warmer. Whoa, war- cold again, cold again. Well, you get getting get a little whoa. Warmer, 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 burning hot. Oh, my goodness, you're burning up. Woo! Give him a hand, right? Way to go, man. Huh? Good at this you're good at this game. We'll play it again. You can play with my son all day long. It's his new favorite game. Let's play hot and cold. Let's play hot and cold. What did I just show you? Same thing with the presence of God. Every step you take towards him, the hotter you get. Every step you take near him, the hotter you get. Every step you take away, the colder you get. And your game between hot and cold, between the presence, between the Holy Spirit, between God doing the work that you long for him to do, is a matter of you taking one more step closer. And one step closer, he says, draw near, take a step, get a little hotter until you are set on fire. The presence is a game of hot or cold. You want more of him, you're going to find more of it. You long for more of him, you're going to get more of it. You want, I, I, this is what I love about prayer and worship. We have prayer and worship coming up Wednesday night, 7 p.m. It's my favorite thing that we do as a church. One person is fired up about prayer and worship. It is by far my favorite thing we do. Why? Because we just get hotter. And hotter and hotter and we lean more into his presence and it grows and it builds to where it is so overwhelming. I can't get people to quit. Worship for an hour and then it's on eight comes along and they're cheering on for another song and they're calling on for another song. And then once we build that into our life, our daily life, our corporate life, we long for the presence. He says, don't take your presence. Take a step closer. You want more of the Lord's work in your life? Take a step closer to Him. You want more of His presence in your marriage? Take a step closer to him. Start praying together. Start reading a devotional together. Start talking about what we talked about here on your way home together. You want more of that with your kids? Start talking to your kids about it. Start walking your kids through it. You want more of that in your dorm? You want more of that in your apartment? Just start play worship music all day long. Whatever you have to do, take steps closer, and you will get hotter and hotter and hotter. And then he finishes here. The last do. 5112. He says, restore to me. Do this, Lord. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Restore to me the joy Restore to me what it means to worship you, to love you. And again, again, see how many times he asked God and make me willing to obey you. If you're struggling with obeying God, ask him to make you willing. Lord, whatever you do, make me willing. Make me willing, build in me a willing heart. We talk about that all the time. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you're not teachable, if you're not willing, you're not coachable, it is wasted talent. Yet if you're willing, if you'll open yourself up to being willing, all of a sudden you will see God do great things. And I love Jude 24 compliments this verse. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into His glorious presence without a single fault. It is His glory that welcomes us back into His presence the way that He sees us, the way that He has cleansed us with a clean heart, with pure hands, with a renewed spirit and a loyal mind and a desire to walk with Him. He sees us Differently. He cleanses us differently. It ma- makes me think about this. I, uh, growing up, we had this, this kid who played on our basketball team, and his dad was the announcer. And it was so obnoxious because for us, when we, were, when we were checking in or when we were coming into the game or when we were starting the game, he would just announce regular, You know, he would say, ah, number nine, Luke Cunningham, and we'd come down the aisle. Number five, Aaron Barnani, announce him in Aaron, come down the aisle. And then all of a sudden, when his son came up, huh, and the greatest, and the most wonderful. And he's got the best jump shot. And he's he's a dunker. He's a shooter. He's a defender. He's everything in between. He's unstoppable on offense, and he is shut down on defense. He is the greatest second coming of a basketball player. My son, number thirteen. I won't say his name, but we were all like, really, really, like that's how you're announcing. What about me? Where's mine, right? But when we, when we begin to see what God does for David, and when we begin to see what the blood of Christ does for us, and we begin to see what asking God to work in us will do, and we begin to see what He is able to produce in us if we will pursue Him, all of the sudden, our introductory changes, It's not just plain old you. It's his child that has been renewed, that has been perfected by the blood of Christ, ready to be presented to the world with a purpose to do something great for God. I love how David's life ends. I don't have time to go into it, but if you read 1 Kings 1 and 1 Kings 3, and I think it's 1 Kings 10, every time David is mentioned After this, he's mentioned as a noble, honorable man after God's own heart. What did God do? God gave him a second chance, and he brought him back to the place that he desired for him to be all along. That's what he wants to do for you.